0: Genesis 2 and verse 18, for those of you who are uh, visiting with us today or haven't been with us in a while, we're working our way through the book of Genesis and we've had a few uh, adjustments in the planning, but God in his kind providence brought us to this passage today. This was not any great planning on my part. This is how it worked out and I can tell you all the backstory. So look with me, if you will, to Genesis 2. And verse 18 this is the word of God then the Lord God said it's not good that the man should be alone I will make him a helper fit for him now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called every living creature that was its name the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, would you teach us and instruct us and open our eyes to your word that we may learn and grow, that we may see Jesus that we may know him and love him more because of the good news of the gospel to us, even in looking at a passage like this. Cause Jesus to be glorified through your word today, I pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the things that I'm finding in my study through the book of Genesis is that I'm reading a lot more than I feel like I normally do. There's just so much. And in reading, uh, you kind of can. I described last week of the rabbit hole that I fell down of the Mark Futato article. Um, and this week it was different uh, books and articles and so forth. But it's, it's neat to not only think of the treasure trove of what Scripture is, but also to see what different people's perspectives were. And one of the things that I came across uh, was a story that James Boyce, or a riddle that James Boyce told of. James Boyce was the pastor at 10th Prez in Philadelphia for years. And he spoke of this riddle as if it was common knowledge. I had never heard of this. And the question is, what is most like half a wheel of cheese? Now, you may know the answer to this. I had never heard it, and I kind of felt dumb when I read that I was supposed to know this, and I don't know it. And I didn't know the answer when I first read the question. Uh, Part of the problem with a riddle like this today is what's a wheel of cheese? You know, for people younger than me, cheese might come shredded or it might come in a sauce or it might come between a piece of plastic that you unwrap. You know, that's what cheese is. But, of course, cheese still is and used to be made more in a wheel. But when a kid asks you a riddle, what do you do? Even if you know the answer, you don't give the answer. You play along. You give them every possible answer that they might think of or imagine or might be silly so that they come to the point of either frustration or delight, and they tell you. And so what is the answer to what is most like half a wheel of cheese? The other half. Oh, and then you hear it, and you're like, well, of course. Why didn't I think of that, like every riddle? Well, as I described last week, um, we we went through chapter 1 of Genesis it's the big story, the big picture, the macro story of creation. And then in Genesis 2, the author Moses comes back around and begins retelling the same story. It's not another creation event. This is just another account, and these are these micro stories where he zeroes in and gives us more detail of the same event of creation. And so today's micro story, as it were, is a zeroing in on day six of creation. It's the same event of creation. And when we, we think of all the animals, the livestock, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, we ask ourselves, which one is most like Adam? The answer is none, right? There wasn't one. That was kind of the point of him bringing all the animals before him. What is most like Adam? Well, it would be the one created for him. There wasn't a suitable partner for Adam after all of the animals were made, and so God made the other half. Now, in that, I'm not saying that Adam was half a human or that Eve was half a human, but that when we see how God made man, he made him male and female in his image. And so his image is not perfectly expressed in the male or the female alone, but in the male and the female, in the completeness of his creation. And so God declared, it's not good that man is alone. Something's missing. Eve was that which was missing. And Adam, God did something for him to instruct him. And he brought the parade of animals around for him to see that what's like, most like a half a wheel of cheese, you know, there was no other half of the wheel of cheese. In God's sovereignty, this text falls on Mother's Day, as I mentioned. I'm thankful for that because it speaks to the gift that women are to all of us, and particularly for mothers. Good or bad, hard or easy, this day recognizes that none of us would be here without our moms. For some of us, it's a day of mixed emotions. There's both bitter and there's sweet with this day. But there is no question that all of our lives have been marked by our mothers. Again, because all of our mothers were sinners, it's good and bad. And because we live in a sinful world, it's good and bad. There are marks of both kinds. But for us who are believers, these marks that have been left are marks that are being improved upon and redeemed by the work of the Spirit in our lives. God is using the story of our mothers for some who aren't here anymore... He's continuing that story in and through our lives. And so it can bring us to a point where we can thank God for our moms. Eve, of course, would be the first mother. And so it's a kind providence that we come to this text today. But Eve is not the chief actor, nor is she the star in this text. And I know that doesn't surprise any of you. Who is the star? Who is the chief actor in every sermon Of course, it's God who is at work in and through this. And so we're not going to get too distracted by any human character, but instead we're going to see what God did in and through this micro story of creation. There are four actions that we see in the text. The first is that God spoke, God said. We know that that's how he also created. But here he spoke something unique. In verse 18, God formed and then God brought in verse 19 and then God caused and He took in verse 21 and finally God made and then He brought in verse 22. Those are the four things that I want us to look at today. What God is doing is much more in Genesis 2 verses 18 to 25 is much more than simply making the woman. God is graciously bringing an instructional tool in the life of Adam. And even more so, God is teaching us about the creation order, but also our needs as people created in His image. And it serves as a good reminder when when our timetable doesn't match up with God's timetable or our experiences in life don't meet the expectations that we had uh, that have been given to us by God. What is often happening is what we see happening here in Genesis 2 that God is doing a work different than what we understand. Rather than simply providing Eve and saying, here's the other half of mankind, God uses a little uh, time and space and some animals and what all did this look like and how long did it take to to, to teach Adam some things? And there are times in all of our lives where God is doing the same thing. We don't have the answers, so we don't know why, but he's good and he's trustworthy. So look in verse 18, "...then the Lord God said..." Again, we see the dual name of God here. We saw this first appear in the earlier parts of chapter 2. In all of chapter 1, we saw the singular name of God, Elohim, the powerful name of God. And here, it's joined with Yahweh, the personal, imminent God. And the author records that this personal, em- imminent God, who's also the creator of all things, said that something is not good, which is weird when we read the text as a whole, because everything up until this point had been good. So what is it that's not good, that man should not be alone? Well, first of all, this was no surprise to God. He wasn't uh, surprised by this realization. This was clearly for Adam. But see, Adam hadn't realized it yet. Um, it's, it's, It's possible that until the animals had finished, that he began to even process that there wasn't one that was like him. Remember, the garden had everything he needed. It was not only the fruit of the tree that was for his food, all that he needed, but it was also beautiful to the sight. It was pleasant to the eyes. So he was, in many ways, his needs were met except for this other half. It wasn't a surprise that God said, whoops, you know, what have I done? Or I didn't do that very well or I messed up. I need to go back and fix that. Instead, there is order and reason in this sixth day of creation. God is declaring this and he is staging this as a teaching tool for Adam. He's showing Adam that he needs his other half. The need that Adam had for the woman was more than just companionship. We could list obvious things like Adam couldn't have procreated without the woman. Uh, We know that man needed the help of the woman in life because she, being an image bearer of God, Brought things to the equation that he did not have. Unique gifts and characteristics that he didn't possess. But man also needed somebody to communicate with. The animals couldn't communicate. And we know this with our pets. Um, We, being pet owners less than a year, are completely smitten. And we have become those weird, strange people, myself included, and I'll go ahead and do this because if not, my kids will tell stories about me, of fawning all over and talking baby talk to the dog. I'm sure my neighbors think we're nuts because we do it all the time. But the dog doesn't talk back. We say whatever we want and the dog just, you know, pants and licks and does what he does. Adam had all of these animals and yet not one that he could communicate with. Man needed someone to share things with, to relate to spiritually. There is something that is unique about corporate worship that we need one another. And it isn't just that we need a spouse to experience this. We need the body of Christ in that we need to be able to sing together, pray together, and hear God's word together. Where two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. And so there was a spiritual component, a spiritual need We could add to this list, I'm sure, but the bottom line is that Adam needed Eve. Human relationships were something that he needed because he had been made in the image of God. And as one writer says, God does not exist in isolation, but in triunity. And so that our being created in his image means that we are relational, we are social people, we're not to be an island unto ourselves. And so after saying then that it was not good for Adam to be alone, God declared I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, the phrase that's translated helper fit for him, really, if we translated it literally, would be like opposite him. But that doesn't sound good, so we say helper fit for him. Or according to his opposite. And it was the idea that, and and we know this, right? How, How do a lot of husbands introduce their wives? This is my better half, right? Uh, we, we know this, that there's a sense of oppositeness to us, and most of men are smart enough to realize that standing to their right is the better part of the half of the equation. And so Adam needed this other half, literally the, his opposite, what God had made. As matching opposites, she would supply what was lacking in him, one writer says. And so Adam, not even knowing what was lacking in him, is taught this through the parade of animals so that he would see that he needed Eve. In the very same way, God stated everything was good at the end of each day of creation. So he now comes and states that it's not good for man to be alone. It's startling. But God was not indicting himself as if he had made a mistake. It was not a shortcoming on his part. It was actually a very good gift to Adam. And it's a good gift to us today because all of us, especially those of us who are married, need to think about this from time to time, that we need the other. We need to remember the importance of the other. What God has brought together, let no man break apart. There is a unity, there is a oneness in this. In verse 19, the author then looks back to what God had already done. He had formed the beast's. the the field, the birds of the air, the animal kingdom out of the ground, just like he had made man out of the dust. This potter of grace that we saw last week providing the creation, particularly for man and woman to use for their use, for their pleasure. Again, we ask ourselves, what would it be like if there were no animals in the world? If you really think, I tried thinking about that this week. It's really hard to think about. If you think not only about our world today, but our history and what role animals have played, it's hard to imagine what life would be like without animals. I mean, the first thing that goofy me thinks of is, of course, Oreo, the pet, right? I can't imagine not coming home and having this unconditional love that regardless of what day that I've had or anybody else has had, he's just goofily happy that I walk in the door, right? But we also think of, you know, in the agrarian world and how animals for centuries played a key role in that. Uh, but then we think of what we're all starting to think about at 11.15 in the morning, and that's beef. <laughs> or, or even more importantly, bacon. <laughs> you know, what would the world be like without the animal kingdom? It's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine, too, what the world would have been like without sacrifice. All of this blood sacrifice that would point to Christ. The animal kingdom was a good gift that had been given to Adam and Eve by God. And God brought them to the man to see what he would call them. If you remember back in the first chapter of Genesis, we saw that the act of naming something as God named day and night, heaven and earth and sea... Those were all a a sign of sovereignty or rule or dominion in the Near East. And so God here is taking Adam and He's showing him how to rule and have dominion over the animal world. Adam wasn't just simply grunting as the animals walked by. It's not told to us in in this, but we, we can understand that God had given him the gift of communication, of language. Adam was able to communicate and speak. And not only that, he was able to discern and understand and give names based on his observations to the animals. And so he is displaying his God-likeness in that he's made in the image of God in the, his ability to communicate and his ability to be creative in the naming of the process of animals. Um, he's really showing how he's made in the image of God. But, of course, there's more than this, this, to, to this exercise than just naming the animals because God is helping him to see, in verse 20, there's no helper fit for him. God already knew this. God didn't just realize this now. He already knew this. He wasn't surprised by it. This was just a gracious educational gift to Adam and to you and me. And, again, it's something that we can ponder as we look to our spouse What Adam was missing, what was not good about this, Eve brought to the relationship. And by inference, we can say that Adam also brought this to the relationship. The one needed the other. And by becoming one flesh in marriage, when either spouse tries to hurt the other out of anger or retaliation for their own hurt, they are truly hurting themselves. When you speak harshly, When you push buttons, when you act passively, aggressively to your spouse and hurt them, you are hurting yourself. When you think the worst about your spouse and continually seek to find fault in them and break down the confidence of the relationship, you're hurting yourself because it's one flesh. So for us who are married, God has given you one to the other. So don't trample on the good gift that He's given. Now, you who are not married, whether you're never married, you've never been married, whether you're single again, don't misinterpret this as being tied to your worth. Marriage is a good gift. There isn't a question about that. It is. It's a good gift. But not everyone is given the gift, and not everyone is given the gift for the same amount of time. This does not mean that you are deficient, or that God loves you less, or that He has somehow punished you. It's easy for us to look at the gifts that other people have been given and wish we had it ourselves. It's what we do. You who are parents know this. You know, the minute that you give a gift to one child, if you don't bring one for everyone, if it's a birthday or a special event, envy is automatically kicked in. And if you haven't been a parent, you can remember back to your own life how you did this. And we still do it as adults. We look across the fence and the grass looks greener. And we think, oh, that I could have that. We need to realize that singleness is also described as a gift, even if it's only for a time. This is how Paul described it in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. Again, as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself. But each has his own gift from God, one kind of one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. It's a gift. So if today God has given you a spouse, cherish them as a gift that they are to you to give glory to God through the testimony of your marriage. And if today God has given you singleness, cherish this as a gift and steward it to the glory of God through the testimony of your life. Now in verse 21, after naming the animals, Adam now saw his need. He needs someone like himself. There's no suitable partner for him. The Lord then caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took out one of his ribs and closed, it up the, closed up its place with flesh. This is the first surgery, the first uh, anesthesiology uh, of God. Bob Wisniewski was, I don't know if he's here this morning, he was over this past week, and he said uh, something of a friend, a pastor friend of his house, that his wife would tell people when asked, you know, what does your husband do? Uh, she would say, well, he puts people to sleep. And I told Leslie, that's, that's the answer that you need to tell people now. Because, you know, when you tell people that you're a pastor, or you're, if you're a wife, that your husband's a pastor, it's, you, know, you want to experience awkwardness or the complete shutdown of the thing. So I said, just start telling people that you, you know, I put people to sleep. Oh. Here, God puts Adam to sleep. And it's, it's for a reason. It's not just so Adam won't feel any pain. There is something very specific. Does this sound familiar to another story in Scripture where God puts someone to sleep? Do you remember Abraham? When God came to establish the covenant with Abraham, he set the whole scene up and then he put Abraham to sleep. Why? Because God's saying, I made the covenant, I'm going to establish the covenant and I'm going to keep the covenant, and it's just going to be a gift to you. And here, God is showing Adam that Eve is a gift to him. It's not his work, it's not his creativity, it's not his handiwork or his uh, possession, which serves as a testimony to us. God was bringing to completion the task of creating man in the image of God, male and female. And it does communicate the moral ordinance of the created order. Man was created first and then the woman. But it also serves as a testimony to Christ and His bride. A testimony that each marriage has the potential to put on display. The unity of husbands and wives shining the glory of Christ and His bride, the church. And we know that this image that we see... In Christ as the groom and us as the bride, is a sure thing. It's where our hope is that nothing can separate us from his love. Adam doesn't get any of the credit. He's helpless. He's fast asleep. Eve was not going to be his possession or his handiwork. Instead, she was a gracious gift to him. And not only was she going to be a gift to him, she was going to give gifts to Adam. For Eve would become the mother of their children. Eve, the first mother, is an example of not only the way we see life given, it's the way all of us came into this world, right? But we also see the one who does exactly what Jennifer's doing now nurturing, comforting. And what does a baby want? What does an infant want? What does a toddler want when they're hurt? Occasionally, maybe they want someone else, but typically we want mama. We want mama. Mom is the one who brings the comfort, who brings the care. And sometimes even older children want their mom. And usually moms don't complain about that. So God rendered Adam helpless to give him this good gift of his better half. And one of the quotes that I came across, I think it was in every commentary I read this week, which I've never seen happen before, is a quote by Matthew Henry. Matthew henrys he's an old dead guy. Uh, Presbyterian minister, and because his stuff is old, it's all in the free domain. So his commentaries are accessible. If you ever want a, a Bible commentary, Matthew Henry, Google it. You can have access to all of his commentaries for free. A lot of times think, people think when they're free, it must not be very good, but that's not the case with Matthew Henry. He tends to be pretty good. And this is what he wrote. The woman is not made out of his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. He got away with words, didn't he? Well, in the final verses of, the, of this passage, we see the first wedding ceremony. God takes the rib from the man, he makes it into the woman, and he brings her to the man like a father walks his daughter down the wedding aisle. And Adam's first response, these are the first recorded words of Adam in Scripture. They're not only ecstatic... They're poetic. He says, This at last is bone of my... Do you hear the exasperation? He's seen all the animals. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Both the act of God bringing Eve to Adam and Adam's response are this beautiful picture. And God is shown as the originator, the author of marriage. That He establishes marriage, the parameters and the bond of it. And Jesus affirms this, not only that this is indeed inspired scripture, but also this fact about marriage when he quotes these verses, verse 24 in particular in Matthew 19. In answering the question uh, to, the, to the scribes and the Pharisees uh, about divorce, he says, Have you not read that when he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Moses, the author of Genesis, who wrote these words, then brings to the end of this little micro story that we have here, these two statements about marriage. One is about marriage itself, and the other is about the state of innocence of, in, in Eden. First, marriage is the joining together of two people. It's the beginning of something new. In marriage, you're no longer your own. You, at the marriage vows, you notice when people make those vows, they're giving themselves to the other. You're not, you're, you're, you are not your own anymore. And you leave your father and mother. You, you start something new. Something new is created. The second statement is about the innocence of these newlyweds in Eden. There was no shame in their nakedness before each other. In fact, there was no shame at all because there was no need for shame. There was no opportunity for shame because there was no sin. And this was probably the best part of Eden because the absence of sin meant the presence of God in a special and unique way. And that's something that we can all relate to. You and all I can all relate to the desire to be free from shame, free from guilt, free from regret. Think of how many hours, maybe days, possibly weeks or months out of our lives that we give to rehashing the, the past, the history, to wishing, oh, if I could just go back and do it over again, how differently I would do things. If I could go back and take, make a different decision, take a different road, how differently my life would look today. Or we take the wisdom and the understanding and the knowledge that we have today to go back and rectify past wrongs. If only we could do this. Have you ever met someone who is stuck at that place in their life? some mistake, some unmet expectation, some wrong that was done to them, and they just can't get past it. And if you talk to them ever for 60 seconds or more, you're going to hear about this, right? There's a sense that we, we, we feel the regret or we feel the shame or we feel the guilt and we long for it to be gone. What do we do with it? The table that is before us today holds the answer. It puts the answer on display to our problem of shame and guilt and regret. And so what Adam and Eve experienced in Eden, we get a taste of in this table, but it's pointing us to that time and place when all guilt and shame and regret and stain will be removed forever and ever. I want to read a piece of an article to you. I posted it this past week, so I know some of you have seen it. Scott Sauls wrote this about self-esteem. And he wrote about how it's a failure. Self-esteem, it never, it, it never brings to fruition. It doesn't deliver what it promises. Listen to how he explains it. The only esteem that won't abandon us is the esteem given to us by Jesus. Why? Because only in Jesus are we fully known and always loved, thoroughly exposed, yet never rejected. Only Jesus will repeatedly forgive us when we fail him. Only Jesus will declare his affection for us when we are at our very worst, as well as at our very best. Only in Jesus can we return to that blessed Edenic state of being naked and without shame. The quest for self-esteem is deep down an attempt to silence negative verdicts that assault us from outside and from within. It's nothing new. When Adam and Eve felt the sting of shame, just like the boasting Pharisee who prayed, Lord, thank God I'm not like this tax collector next to me, they both self-medicated. They hid. They covered up. They deflected blame wherever they could. And we have been imitating them ever since. In Jesus, the second Adam, the negative verdicts from the outside and from within are made powerless. There is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Him. In Jesus, we no longer have anything to fear, prove, or hide. There is no need to self-medicate. There is no need to self-promote or to drop names at parties. There's no need to compare or to compete. There's no need to wear ourselves down by chasing career or applause or respect or being able to fit into a size four. We're not called to be perfectly awesome. We're called to be imperfectly faithful because we have been perfectly loved, liberated, and highly esteemed by the Most High. It's said that Buddha's dying words were, Strive without ceasing. Jesus' dying words were, It is finished. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. In the table that is before us here today, we remember and we proclaim, Christ has died Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. That's the hope for the guilt and the shame that we know from our sin. It's the hope of our broken bodies as they decline and fail us. It's the hope for the sin-wrecked relationships, including imperfect moms and dads and children and friends and co-workers and church members and pastors. It's the hope for our fears, our anxiety our lostness, it is the hope of the nations, the hope for peoples of all tribes and tongues. Jesus who died to restore us back to the state of Eden, the relationship that we long for in which we will have fellowship with God perfectly, hope for the future, and peace in this life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do long for... Everything to be complete. We long for Jesus to return and make everything right. And yet while we're in this in-between now and not yet experience, we look at the hope of the cross. We look at this table that's before us. And our hope is sure. Because of who you are. Because your faithfulness is beyond compare. It, It never ends. It stretches to the skies. Because you always do what you say you will do. Because your promises are true. Because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We know that we can trust you. And so this hope that is ours is a sure hope. And I pray that you would make it surer today for us. That we would believe more of what Christ has done for us. That you would grow us in the faith. And that the the guilt and the shame and the regret that we experience today. And that we'll fight against tomorrow and the day after that. That it would be bathed in the blood of Christ, the good news of the gospel, that the scars that remain in Jesus' hands and feet are the scars that dealt finally with all of our sin, all of our, our, our shame, all of our regret. When you set on the cross, it is finished. Thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.